Hi there, my name is Liam Bishop and this is the third episode of my Interviews with Writers series. And today I'm talking to the poet Catherine Horrocks about her debut collection of poems published by Car Connect, Growlery. You might have already seen Catherine's poems published in Manchester Review, the PM Review and the TLS. As is customary now for this series, Catherine is going to start us off with a reading. House of Other Tongues. Day and night the garrulous stairwell tattles of each departure and arrival. Walls so thin, talk in the house floats through them and clucks opinion on the manner in which you draw your curtains shut. Day and night in the big kitchens, dishwater falls from rattled sponges. One thick, greasy drip each time you ring. In the lobby, parental letters sit and advise against other than English abroad. And there are adverts offering meetings with someone who can help with accent reduction. A poor voice near carries. Day and night, regional accents are disapproved of the world over by those who want tongues smooth as glass slippers to sound unaffected by whereabouts for some reason, better able to broadcast something equated with knowledge. Day and night, this is the house of other tongues, whole salted fish head with ice in the gills, dried crayfish twirling under tap water like sycamore seed in the sink, the bang of utensils, a strange glossolalia, when day and night the fridges are loaded with sweating Tupperware, by those whose tongues stay locked in the mouth's hermitage, light years off from conversation, till they start with laughter and words they didn't know they know. What does it mean to give the title of your first collection of poetry, The Growlery, uh, especially considering that you took the title from Dickens's novel, Bleak House? Well, uh, in Bleak House, there's a character called Jarndyce, and he's sort of flirting with his ward, Emily, when he uses the word growlery to describe his study. He's trying to impress her with his eccentric, whimsical humour, I think. Um, I use the word not to describe a room, but to look at how concepts like nationality, place identity and nationhood can be instilled in the mind and internalised. I wanted to subvert things really so that the inner becomes outer in a way. Stanza, as poets will often tell you, is the Italian for room. And part of having a series of poems published involves sending a poem's rooms into the outside world. And apart from that, I just thought it would make a great place name. On one level, it's a space to write in, which is what the book came to represent for me. I kind of had to fight for that space. I liked that growlery could be read as an aggressive word because it's got growl and grr in it. I took it from Bleak House because that's what I thought the UK was turning into at the time of writing. The Jandice lawsuit in Bleak House is an interminable one. And what the press refers to as Brexit was also by that time somewhat interminable. So it seemed resonant on that level as well. What Jandice says is, this you must know is a growlery. When I'm out of humour, I come and growl here. Um, and it has that ring to it, it has that, like you said, that you know, gur, that kind of purring nature to it. But I think what you said about rooms is really interesting. And there are lots of images of rooms, estates, and houses in your poems. And images of property often seem to recur. But I get the sense that, and perhaps it ties into what you said of having to fight for that space to write this collection. But the home isn't always a place of safety and comfort 
uh, in the growlery. I'm thinking of House of Other Tongues, for instance. Yeah, um, House of Other Tongues was written when I was uh, in a place that housed 45 other people. I was the only British person in there and I've lived in crowded places before, but I've never really been happier with the people I was surrounded by there. Um, And I loved the sense of coming home from work and uni um, and then being immediately transported somewhere else. Um, That poem in particular is flagrantly anti-Brexit. It's more anti-Brexit than the poem titled Brexit in the collection. And just as an aside, when I say I'm opposed to what the press calls Brexit, I mean I'm opposed to that particular administrative shift, so long as that shift appears to be predicated upon jingoism and racism. I'm going to talk about that poem, Brexit, uh, shortly, but I just want to ask a bit more about this idea of an administrative shift yeah. It sounds incredibly pernicious whilst also being quite plain. It, it sounds sinister, almost like something Chairman Mao would have said, the great leap forward, the cultural revolution um, and so forth. Um, one of the pivots in House of Other Tongues is the idea of accent reduction. I'm going to just read that bit from the poem now. Um, In the lobby, parental letters sit and advise against other than English abroad, and there are adverts offering meetings with someone who can help with accent reduction. Um, So just that small bit. Um, Accent reduction, I think, is a horrible phrase leading towards what I see as an ideologically driven desire for restriction and social homogeneity um and when i was living in that building i literally found an advert offering accent reduction as a service i decided it was sinister to imbue something as personal as one's voice with a sense of hierarchy and to decide that there are good or bad accents and to then financially reward people for having the best accent is kind of crazy which i know is kind of a surreal take on elocution and its place in modern society so is this like a, a leaflet in the hallway of this building? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I just remember thinking it was so bizarre. Well, Inform uses you muse on power plants and these kind of big infrastructure projects. For this interview, you've provided some pictures which I invite people to take a look at. It should be on the screen as we're talking now. And going back to this building where there were these, all these voices, one of the images that you provided looks to be like Park Hill in Sheffield. And I have in mind this other building appears to be quite a formative environment for you and your work and certainly some of the poems. What is it about these places? Well, Park Hill was, I was going to say is, I'll say was an amazing building. And I was interested in getting a grip on that particular building. I preferred it before it was refurbed, but I kept going to Sheffield and every time I saw it, I'd be like, it's amazing. I I really wanted to get a sense of it, but it was difficult because it was being sold off privately. Um, When I was there, I had a look around it and one of the few people still present there um, was a lady and she told me she'd been given her marching orders and was a bit disturbed about having to get out. She tried to retain her flat. Um, Some were allowed to keep their flats at discount. Others were just moved on. Imagine when you say marching orders, you put that in quite polite terms. It'd just be one of those bog standard notices 
that you'd get um, from the council, really, just saying you, you've got to leave. Um, there's, it's like there's nothing, there's no thought goes into who that letter's been sent to. It's just been sent to it because the building's been bought by an investor who's got enough money for it. Yeah, it sounds like um, not playing bits of paper, paper with these kind of phrases on like action reduction. They're quite powerful, you know, mm. ways of, of control, not controlling, but certainly. They, they try people. to appear as innocuous mm. as possible, but when That's you actually stop, stop and look at them, you're just like, what? Yeah, innocuous. That's the word. Speaking to people, then you, in part, Kelly spoke to this this lady. This building where you spoke about being with all these different people and different nationalities. And as you said, they are important to you, but not only important to your poetry then, but for the craft of the poetry and understanding perhaps of the poetic voice. And because there's a sense that a voice is being lost in these buildings as a result of ideology, Brexit, redevelopment, I don't know. Mm. Would that be fair? Yeah, I mean that that that'll be because there's a great deal of my own voice in in those couple of poems. I think all of the building poems, like that, my own voice comes out quite strongly. But um, in some of those poems, uh, they're about buildings where voices literally did carry like crazy. So I wanted to put some of them in what I was writing. Um, yeah, with Park Hill, I just wanted to capture that particular building and I don't fully understand why, but it felt important at the time. Um, I don't think we always know why we're drawn to write about the things we we are drawn to. Uh, but I'm quite political. I suppose some of what's lost is um, socialism, um, unless it comes back in some other form but that we get to see. But anyway, as, as well, um, there's also specific communities that are lost I don't like to be too political in my poems and I was restraining myself and trying to make it more about the lived experience um, I prefer to call these voices an echo or talk about the panopticon effect in in parliament fallen I talk about it being a space in which people are shoved in order to maintain their own echo chamber and their own segregation from a wider society. Um, there were lots of echoes in the Park Hill complex. And I think phonically it was designed to be that way. Yeah, I can see it. I can see the, like you said, the panopticon, all these self-surveilling kind of system that keeps everyone in definitely, order. Definitely, definitely. And there is an echo in Parliament Fallen, and it's that sound of con, mm -hmm. uh, panopticon, concatenation. And I don't know if that tied into this idea of people being conned out of a way of life mm -hmm. or their homes. I think I, uh, when I was sitting down to write the poem, I didn't plan that, but I know that when I was looking back at what I'd written, I was like, oh, I'm keeping that in for that reason. Yeah, because there's definitely a sense of being conned out of something. Yeah. And conned into and conned out of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in Brexit then, which we've mentioned briefly, you talked about this idea of, I don't think this is a fair word to do, correct me if I'm wrong, but restraining the political aspect of what you're trying to say. And in Brexit, it seems to create this restraining effect and all those humorous um, punning quality into the poem. And you play with this idea of leaves and leaving, which was obviously a very significant word during the uh, Brexit campaign. Yeah, the, the poem started off being about postcards, letters, sheets of paper, etc. And when I was writing it, it was the same week that the vote happened. And I think even if I'd 
wanted to continue writing in in that vein of it being sort of epistolary in uh, in subject content um i wanted to move away from it being a political poem but but the brexit vote meant that i had to go back into the politics so the poem was eventually written in a frenzy after going to the polling station yeah and it sounds like these again these sheets of paper that are quite pernicious <laughs> functions have returned in a way but yeah you contrast then you said you were moved to write it after coming away from the polling station and you do contrast images of moving and leaving with fixedness and there's a really wonderful image of people wrapped up like tents shut in brexit but considering some of the experiences you've talked about now people in their homes being forced to move change the way they speak is there a tension then in this idea of moving freely and moving forcibly that you engage with perhaps in yourself when writing your poetry? I do believe that we're all um, travellers of a fashion. For the poetic process, I personally need a sense of freedom in order to write. Um, I like to feel like there are open borders and I want as many of those as possible. Um, without referring too much to my inner child, I, I want to fly and I want to go into space and poems can become vehicles which allow that as far as I'm concerned. Um, there's also quite strongly in this book um, a bit of tension between form and um, content because it, the form can be used to, um, I think, um, if you have, for instance, a strong opinion on a subject, you can use the form to uh, prevent you from hammering that home too hard or from jamming it down people's throats a bit yeah you, there's the push and pull in in the form as well that's really interesting in shaping then perhaps the rooms as you said the stanzas as it were i i use rhyme generally sparingly but i like to use half rhyme to um when you've got something strong to put across you can then um the surprise is always finding a, a really good word you would never have thought would be where the poem would go to um which i think comes more with from half rhyme than um uh, full rhyme yeah well i can see why brexit then um not only because it's a big administrative shift but also because of its kind of perennial promise of closing borders uh, why that might represent a conceptual and physical problem for you. Mm -hmm. and, and the tent imagery does seem to come a motif for a kind of real moment of freedom and also this idea of taking a home somewhere with us. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of poems with tents in them. Um, in Buttermere, my partner and I went, went camping by the lake of that name and I ended up taking an image about camping from that and putting it in the Brexit poem and there is still camping images in in the Buttermere poem but I don't know why I did that it just felt it felt better yeah, yeah perhaps another echo maybe another way of mm -hmm. borders in your poetry definitely and camping relates to that sense of freedom uh, uh, I read Exit West by Mohsin Hamid and he reimagines the process of immigration by making this fantastical situation of going through one door and coming out of another door. And 
the tent idea then came into my mind when writing Brexit. Um, Goatfell is another poem that was inspired by a camping trip during which a tent literally popped into my face when I got it out of the bag. Crikey. Sounds... <laughs> it was painful. Sounds painful. That's why I don't go camping. There's too many, oh, hazards. No. Too many hazards and not just in the form of know, hills and rivers, like <laughs> tent poles and that kind of thing. Well, you seem to take pleasure then in the natural world. Uh, and obviously camping gives access to that, doesn't it? And, but then there's also the world of these buildings that are home for these people again. And there's a bit of a contrast there. What you do is you seem to mould images from the world into your experiences as if taking it back into the room of the growlery. There's a, there's a push and a pull between the mass produced and the handmade, the push and pull of what we think of as natural and not natural and whether natural really is natural because it's been altered by animals or humans in capacity, which would be difficult to, uh, to move back from now. Um, a small batch um, is a poem where there's some some of that going on. Um, it's about the the fear of losing a baby after an accident on the way to work because there was a set of chaotic circumstances in my work as a ceramicist, and I was trying to get an order out to someone and ended up in a dangerous situation late in my pregnancy. Um, I fell down a flight of steps in the rain one night. Um, I've met a few women who that sort of that sort of thing has happened to, and one of the things we shared in common was the sense of there being a great deal of pressure to work your ass off right up until the baby's born and then immediately spring back out of bed and get to work once the birth has happened. Because there are other some maternal, quite maternal images, I'd say, in your poems that kind of make me think about. Either way, in the poem, you start off with this very bold image of Goldman Sachs and then it finishes with the image, a very personal image of you touching your stomach. What we'll do now is we'll have a quick break whilst Catherine reads from Small Batch. Small Batch. Some Goldman Sachs financier ordered plates to be made and sent to her in Brooklyn. They were cooking in the kiln and would have been glowing when I went towards the cellar, the solstice. I miscounted the steps, misfooted the dark and failed to grip the handrail as I fell. Some of the bones in my foot turned tectonic when I tried to stall the impact. An ankle rotated and split. Concrete chill oozed through my winter coat. I screamed into the night. My partner yelled, the way some bankers do, looking up at screens when the footsie crashes. On the ground I stayed, hand shoved under my coat and jumper, till I felt a movement, a flutter, that was not, thank God, the moon dissolving. I'm just wondering what kind of underlays our lives, what underlays society, because this seems to be important to you and it all seems to be extrapolated either from the personal or the kind of global. There's not always, we don't always meet the eye in your poetry, I would say. You know, we might call this ideology, but I'm thinking of like the poem Undertow, for instance, what the Undertow mm -hmm. might be in society. Well, I wrote Undertow, um, or I at least finished it around 2012. Um, that's when it was published in the TLS, I think. And um, I had a sense of the undercurrent that was leading up to our current political situation. Um, I say current um, because 
I there was uh, I didn't see COVID nineteen coming, <laughs> but um, but the the undercurrent relating to sort of identity politics, national identity, and all of that. Um, the naval and maritime industries are in there uh, in that poem because I wrote it while looking at the Humber, um, pretty much the centre of the city centre of Hull is where the poem is placed. And as with any body of water, if you look at it for long enough, your eyes can start to be tricked into seeing dolphins and whale fins, etc. And I linked that phenomenon to what I saw as an ideological shift towards the past. Looking, it was like a Freudian, uh, I would hope that's as Freudian as I get in, in my writing. Um, <laughs> this idea of, of dreams surfacing, interpreting your landscape as... Um, I was using the landscape psycho psychogeographically to pick up on some of those things and the undertow is the situation we have now, politically speaking, barring COVID-19. Either way, yeah, there's, there's something about forces in your work, uh, it seems like then, mysterious forces we might call them, and I don't want to put a pin on them. And it seems like you're trying to write about them, engage with them in some way. Money is a force, definitely, in our society. I think I ended up using money as a leitmotif throughout Growlery. Um, in Clever Puppeteers, I wanted to use the word money as a refrain to subvert the notion uh, and the idiom that, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, because for some people it pretty much seems to. Clever Puppeteers is about Thirlmere Reservoir in the Lake District and some of the protest which grew up around the use of the reservoir. Um, there's a bit of speech in there which is supposed to be part of the arguments of one of the aldermen, which uh, today we'd consider them an alderman as a local authority type person. Um, I see that as historically important in relation to situations concerning rising water costs, um, and there's another poem called The Gentrified Water that I have uh, in the book. And I think in both those poems, rain and flood water are used as currency almost. Um, the gentrified water is about the fascinating thing that is um, the Indonesian capital, um, Jakarta's potential relocation to Borneo, which is something that's happening partly because of how expensive water is over there. A lot of residents had to draw water up from beneath their homes because um, it's just cheaper to do that. And so consequently, Jakarta is sinking. There are great big sinkholes opening up there. So when I learned that the government there is thinking of relocating the city across to the island of Borneo, uh, that really gave me a lot to think about in terms of transportability of places and the idea that a significant portion of nationhood is actually just created in our minds because if the place that Jakarta uh, is moving to is not already Jakarta but is going to become Jakarta uh, so that Jakarta can still be Jakarta an already established capital city you've kind of got to impose the idea of that city upon the place it's moving to which I, I still find astonishing. Yeah there's a very um, sort of dialectical quality to your poems. I don't know if that'd be fair or not, but it kind of makes you wonder how these places exist. And it brought into my mind the kind of, you know, Xanadu and Coleridge and how we create these places in our world, but how kind of impossibility of them. But, but I'm thinking about what you spoke 
when you mentioned this idea of freedom then and the idea of needing freedom because that's what you felt required for your poetry and there's also a sense of discovery then in your poems even more in your discovering what might not necessarily be pleasant and what you do at the end of the collection then is you leave us with another image of discovery uh, but also somebody who might or looks to be leaving in a way as well the book as a whole weaves in and out of cities and juxtaposes them with more rural settings which feature more heavily towards the end of the book so i did aim to create a sense of leaving when i was arranging the poems um a sort of sense of the opening of like a vista opening out type thing and and to, to add a bit of emphasis to that sense of leaving i put what i thought was the most open-ended poem of the collection right at the very end um that is a poem in which the speaker hints that they've obtained a nest egg, which is going to help them to go elsewhere. That poem is called Moonjar and Moondark. Uh, Moondark being a, a word I found in the glossary of a book about ghosts in Cheshire. It said that Moondark was a word women used in ye olden times to refer to money that they kept hidden from their husbands for whatever reason they might do that. Um, I wondered if it was possibly in the hope that their husbands wouldn't go out to spend the money getting drunk on moonshine. Um, I don't know if that's why, but I thought it might be funny if it were the case. But <laughs> the book ends with the suggestion that someone is going to go some distance from their husband. And that suggestion created the open-endedness I wanted. So bringing that together and just thinking about the idea of these cities and the growling, the rooms uh, and the freedom of writing these poems and I don't want this to sound too liberal or schmaltzy in any kind of way, but you, it seems sometimes that poetry seems like a way of imposing a certain power on the world. And there isn't a really empowering tone. And I don't mean that in a, like I said, I don't mean that in a liberal schmaltzy kind of um, mm -hmm. middle-class kind of way. I just mean that in the sense by the end of Growlery, I felt like I'd sort of risen above this world and that we are ultimately better for spending our time here. Uh, even if there are some very unpleasant aspects to the world, but because you've written about them, I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not. This one I'll take. <laughs> um, there's definitely stuff about the world that I respond to in my poems, which are the things that have made me feel anxious, uh, hence I've thought about them a lot. Um, so I'm not sure if this ties in, but because um, thinking about some of the aerial vantage points that are in growlery, I have a technique I use for dealing with anxiety sometimes. And what I'll do is I'll imagine my geographical position from an aerial vantage point to gain, to try to gain perspective by visualizing surroundings, I suppose. And the way I start to visualize those is often through sound. Um, I know there's a moment where something of that nature happens in one of the poems we discussed, which is Small Batch, the moment the eye of the poem is on the floor after falling down a flight of stairs and hears the world around them, so car door slamming, for instance. Um, it's a technique I latched onto just hearing the sounds of my neighbourhood waking up one morning, um, so there'd be birdsong, then gradually the M62 phases in, getting louder with rush hour and the, the street becomes more active. Um, I know there are at least a couple of poems in Growlery which visually pan out in a similar way. Uh, Frayed is a town, 
was an attempt at capturing my adopted hometown of, of Middleton, Manchester in as gothic a way as I could get away with. An autonomous landfill also features a sort of cinematic panning around a town. Um, and that's a very angry poem um, addressed to someone who's very much angered the speaker. I think my favourite line in that poem is about dropping an abattoir on top of a school. Um, when I was still an undergrad student, I discovered the term psychogeography, which is defined as the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographical environment, consciously organised or not, on the emotions and behaviour of individuals. Um, it's also been defined as a total dissolution of boundaries between art and life. Yeah, an abattoir on top of a school. I think, was it Guy Debord who said, I don't know if it was Guy Debord who said, uh, the beach beneath the city. Yours is a very uh, macabre way, I guess. Oh. That's fantastic. And that totally reminds me of Italo, Italo Calvino, who, um, you know, Invisible Cities. I tried to use a quote from Italo Calvino. I was going to have that at the start of one of the poems, but um, uh, I couldn't afford to pay the estate of uh, Calvino. <laughs> I remember thinking about the time I first looked into psychogeography, that it was kind of amazing that if you set yourself the task of learning everything about your local area with regards to its physical layout. You will never be bored of that place because there's always something to discover. Um, local history, I think, is, is also really important when it comes to getting a decent grasp on a place and your position in it. There's a stanza in Clever Puppeteers I'll read out. Please do. Um, yeah, and in spite of ancient farmers' plans to clot them with manure, the lake's long pipes instigate another skyscraper. Um, although that poem is mostly dealing with Thirlmere, that stanza was inspired by a medieval water dispute which happened between a rural area of Hull, technically East Yorkshire, and Hull itself. Farmers in East Yorkshire went a bit AWOL, basically the suggestion that their local water supply would be used to serve people further out towards the estuary. And then they ran amok chanting weird rhymes by people's doors, basically harassing people in the other parish. Those farmers even complained to Pope Alexander about their water being used. And apparently a response came back, which was along the lines of, please drop this dispute for your own spiritual well-being." <laughs> um, I just love to pick up any quirky bits of local history like that learning Stuff like that, I think, can be another way of gaining spatial perspective. This ability you seem to have of bringing these, you know, that I can see why accent reduction would be so kind of such a really existential kind of issue. Uh, and obviously, yeah. you know, not, you know, not, not forgetting that it is a horrendous thing to do, but a real kind of existential kind of problem for you as well. I was reading something about Alice Oswald, actually. Um, and she, it was, I don't know if you read it, it was in the, New York Review of Books, and she's talking about how Alice Oswald writes about water. I think she calls it the democratic Jew. Water here isn't democratic, and it's not a space for everyone. Combative area for some of the people. In mm. If you've got someone restricting your access to water, then you, mm. you don't feel as though it is a, a democratic thing at all. It should be. Mm. Um, there's an argument for that. That reminds me that, um, speaking of water and democracy, um, which uh, river is it in? This is the largest river in India, um, which is the Ganges. Ganges. 
it's it's been granted person status because the government or whoever got behind that making that happen um, thought it would be a really good experiment to see if they could curb back on some of the pollution by making people think of the river as an actual person Um, and also giving it legal rights which would mean that they could it more easily punish people that pollute it that is interesting yeah on that note uh, as a bit of a treat for this episode Catherine is also going to read us out with a poem as well the gentrified water while the swamp that eats Jakarta eats Jakarta a man sells drinking straws he's pulled from mud for poverty makes us drink from our foundations till they crumble into the cisterns for into the gaps Jakarta falls as if staved in by its own glass towers its unfathomably constructed hotels filled with engineers who cite blueprints and want to tack their dams across the sea, which will still enact the opposite of polder. For already our streets fall over each other like the keys of a neglected piano. Trash spilling from the shack so that each one resembles a weir. For we exist in a capital of geobrinkmanship leaving in hope that our home will drop into its own cracks quietly and then be reconstructed somewhere on the other side, making wells of our bellies to transfer to the city, not yet Jakarta. For if we do not leave, we live as fodder for the flood. What can we do but call to the hotels we sink beneath? Hello, I'm Liam Bishop, and that brings me to the end of these episodes of Interviews with Writers. Now, I'd really love to know what you thought. Why don't you send me a message via Twitter, at Liam H. Bishop, or drop me a message via my website, www.liamhbishop.com, and let me know what you thought of these interviews with writers.